all you whimsical wolves out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature sustainability and conservation. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I'm joined as always by the incredible Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Hi, welcome back. Yes, welcome back to you too. Happy uh, final podcast before Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what day is it? Have you added another element or are you like already at peak festivity oh there we go she's wearing a shirt I'm wearing a christmas shirt excellent and i do still have my friend here with me he's just not in the her bear slash red panda stocking there and her eggnog mug and her christmas tree we are at peak festivities for sarah <laughs> i was gonna put on the reindeer antlers but it's too uh, awkward with the headphones with the headphones sure i am oh, still wow. just you can see my laundry machines behind me that's where i'm at <laughs> Casey and Andrew now have the best nativity set that you've yes. ever seen in your life. I mean, I can't see it on screen, but she sent me pictures. <laughs> I'll share it with you guys. Sarah had an incredible idea to because I, I don't like uh, purchasing lots of seasonal things because most of the year you're going to have to store it and then you're going to have to put it up. And, um, and I just know that I will collect so many things throughout the course of my life that I'm just like trying to push it off a little bit further but we do have lots of little turtle and reptile figurines and I have the holy family little tiny like willow tree set because I decided when I was a kid that the willow tree little do you know those little like, yeah. faceless yeah yep um statues I decided when I was very young that that was going to be my old lady thing to collect was like willow tree figurines <laughs> and so last year I started my collection with a little holy family because it was on sale but it is the only Christmas decoration that I have and so the little holy family is now surrounded by little turtles and <laughs> chameleons instead of sheep and, and camels but, but they're like actually gazing yes. at them <laughs> like it was so much better than even my it's brain perfect. <laughs> So that's what's on my mantle. <laughs> I love it so much. Okay, Casey, uh, challenges from last week. We talked about red pandas last week, which is uh, it's not why, but I have my little stuffed, actually a bear, but kind of looks like a red panda here with me. And you'd given us some challenges, some of which are things, I mean, I have a dog who is all updated on <laughs> all of his vaccines and, and that sort of thing. You'd also challenged us. I, I think we'd talked about thinking about supporting wildlife conservation around the holiday season. And without, I can't say too much about that yet because yeah. I may have done so for people. But Update us next week on <laughs> what you get. <laughs> but I know you have some updates from previous week's challenges too. Yeah, we talked about, gosh, what did we even start this for? It was for... Oh, it was these. We lost sixty nine percent of yeah. wildlife episode. I was like, "What have <laughs> Where that's did how, this come from?" <laughs> that's how bad my brain went because we didn't do a full episode on it. But basically, there was another convention of parties uh, or conference and parties on the convention for biological diversity. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you should listen to that episode. But I told the challenge for that week was to take a look at headlines. For what was going to be updated for that for a bio, uh, biodiversity protection framework and then actually click and read the articles and that conference just ended maybe today maybe a couple of days ago a couple of days ago yeah but they did agree on a framework the nature conservancy and actually the u.s government too because i follow 
some of the the government officials who were involved in the conference and they were pushing for a framework that would protect 30% of nature. So that's 30% of the oceans and 30% of land. And they were able to get everybody on board for it. The biggest sticking point was funding. So um, the idea of the whole agreement is not that every country will protect exactly 30% of their land and 30% of their ocean, but that some countries will be able to do more, some will do less. But the biggest sticking point was, can wealthier nations help fund the protection of those areas? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, that's that forest is set aside. No one's allowed to touch it. It is a completely other thing to practically enforce these things. Um, another win, other than committing some of that that funding from those wealthier countries is that indigenous folks were able to basically get some of their lands counted as being some of those protected areas so they have i don't know exactly all the details on it not all indigenous lands count as that protection level but um if the the worry was is that if you said yeah we're going to protect 30 percent of land it would mean land grabs from indigenous people in their original areas because they're the areas that have the best biodiversity, um, but really it grants them the right to protect those areas and count towards that 30% framework. So potentially great news. The Vox article I read also pointed out that the last time we agreed on something, we met basically none of those goals. So it's something that we're going to have to keep kind of pushing for and keeping our eyes open for because you don't want us to come back 20 years from now and be like, well, we tried, but <laughs> right. So there are some, I think, progress marks also that are within that framework that they're trying to keep track of so that it's not just like, hey, checking back in with everyone. Did anyone do anything? No, no. Okay. Cool. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, we've talked about this before. That's always the concern with this type of thing is there's, this is not a legal. Mm-mm. Yeah. Anything that can be legally enforced, this is an agreement and people have just pledged that, yes. This is a thing they will do, and now they, these countries have to figure out how to do it and how much they can do and all of that. So there is always that thought in the back of my mind when I read these things, but I'd rather they have the agreement than not have the agreement. So. It's certainly better news than we all couldn't agree on anything yeah. and went home and so didn't We just anything. didn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I was happy to see, and I, I read it article from another source that said basically everything that you uh, just said, Casey. So yeah, we'll see. We'll have to just keep following and see where it goes. So Casey, the question for this week, I sort of wish that I had come up with a different one, but I didn't. And and here we are. This isn't exactly the focus of what we're going to talk about today, but it ties into it. So you and I both have a dog and a cat. You've got a bird. You've got other reptiles <laughs> around your house. I'm curious. Do you have, I don't want to say, do you have a favorite? I'm not going to ask you if you have a favorite pet, but did you have a, a favorite type of pet or a type of pet that you have not had that would be one that you would be really excited to have? I am not going to count how many species of animals live in my house because <laughs> there's a lot. I've always just been a dog person. So like, the the goal really was when Andrew and I like finally moved in together and we were more financially stable like we both really wanted a dog we got one I think if I didn't have the practical realities of having a job and like money and things like that I have always wanted a horse Mm -hmm. 
I've always wanted like a horse I could go visit and ride and, you know, be out in the field with. And so that would be something I know I can't because of all of the practical realities of being a dumb grown up <laughs> with other things happening. Um, but that's something that I always really wanted was a horse. I am going to steal that answer yeah. too. I think in part, I, you're yes, a horse girl. <laughs> I was a horse girl. Yes. And, uh, I do think that that would be delightful. Like I don't miss everything that went a lot, like I showed in 4-H and things like that. I was not oh, very cool. good, but, um, but I don't, I, I ended up stopping maybe a year before I had to because I just got so stressed out by it. I just got very nervous about the showing part of it. So I don't necessarily miss that. But yeah, just to be able to go out and spend time with horses and, you know, go on a trail ride or whatever, whenever you wanted to, I think that that would be delightful. They're amazing animals, but very expensive and very time consuming. And I could not, I'm not allowed to have a horse in my bag. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that would be one. I do also, I know you have the reptiles. We had reptiles in the house when I was a kid and, but they were never mine. I do feel like it would be fun to have a snake. I'm not ready to make the investment to get all of the things that I would need to house one and all of that. But I do very much enjoy some of those reptiles as pets. But ultimately my, my difference from you is that you say dog person. I, I'm a cat person. Love my dog. He is whining on the couch like crazy <laughs> right now. I apologize if you can hear him. I'm not sure if he's dreaming or if the cat is like sitting over there staring at him. I can't see them. Uh, they're on the other side of the couch, but uh, I love my dog just more than anything. I love him so much and I'm so glad to have him. But ultimately, like having a cat in the house is is kind of my dream pet. There's just nothing better than having a purring cat sitting with you. Yeah, I do think we're like equal and opposites in that way. Love my cat so, so much. Yeah. At the end of the day, like my dream animal <laughs> it's a dog <laughs> I, I guess we're both very lucky then yes. we, we have our, fulfilled. our <laughs> check um but you know despite being a cat person despite my favorite animal being a tiger I just have to tell you that never once ever 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 in my life have I thought you know what would be a great idea I'm gonna have a tiger as a pet <laughs> never thought that never quite understood uh what the steps that happen to to take a person to to get there but it does happen we do have a quite a number of privately owned tigers and other large exotic animals here in the United States and around the world as well and we recently passed some legislature to hopefully help deal with that and that is what we are going to be talking about today so stick around for that discussion All right. Welcome, everybody, for our discussion on the Big Cat Public Safety Act. You have probably seen some headlines uh, pass your way recently as this uh, has passed in now in both the House and Senate and is expected. I don't believe it has been signed yet, but is expected to be signed into law by the president. I don't know about you, Casey. I have 
seen just largely overwhelming support for this from any and I these are not I have varying ranges of agreement with some of these organizations, but everything from PETA to the Association of Zoos and Aquariums uh, to WWF is all just very excited and pleased that this has been uh, pushed through. It passed unanimously in the Senate. And when does that ever happen? I know, right? (laughs) Uh, And and so with all that part of my mind, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about this week, I wasn't even sure I wanted to do an episode on this because I was just like, yeah, this thing passed and it's good that it passed. And it seems really logical to me that it did pass. Uh, And I do still feel all of that is true, but I think that it is worthwhile to talk about why we need it in the first place and sort of why now uh, did it actually go through? Because this thing has, it's been a long time coming actually in, in many ways, but was actually first introduced back in 2012 was the first time that this Big Cat Public Safety Act was put forward, Casey. And I know we want to talk a little bit about one of the things, if not the main thing, that started that back in 2012, which is an incident that happened in Zanesville, Ohio, which a lot of you listening probably remember as well. Yeah, uh, just a kind of content warning. This little section here includes animal death and human death but there was a uh, man who owned over 50 exotic animals mostly including big cats bears wolves and monkeys um, and he owned them on his private land Uh, he was going through a whole lot of personal turmoil and ended up cutting all the cages open and killing himself and so there were 50 (laughs) large carnivores escaped out into the just area where he lived it was near farms it was near an apartment complex and there were tigers and lions and bears and wolves all running around in this area and it became a disaster because local law enforcement one did not know how many animals Mm -hmm. were running around they had no idea what they were encountering and they basically had no choice it was getting dark it was getting dark yeah, a neighbor like was with his horse out in his farm field and saw like a bear. And he at first he was like, that's a black bear. Like that's something you could run into in Ohio. And then he saw a lion. <laughs> and that's when he he realized something was wrong. And it actually wasn't the first time that they had animals escape from this facility. But basically all of them now were escaped. And law enforcement really had no option other than to kill every one of those carnivores that they came across tranquilizers don't work the way that i think we think about them in the movies (laughs) they have a lot of um, pros and cons and dangers associated with them so the biggest safety thing that they could do for the people in the area was to kill um, 49 of these animals there's a monkey that is the only animal that was unaccounted for they think actually just got eaten by Mm -hmm. one of the big cats and there were a couple leopards and a couple monkeys left on the property and and that was it. And all of the law enforcement that day were like, that was like the worst day of my whole life. Yeah. I had to kill a bunch of animals, but it was also a huge public safety issue yes. because if they hadn't, 
who like imagine playing in your backyard and now there's a tiger there like that's just a reality that was possible when this happened so this happened in 2011 the remaining animals from that facility ended up getting relocated to a sanctuary but the vast majority of them were killed in that area and they were just you know mass buried and it it really it was a national incident. I remember being in college in Virginia and seeing it on the news and like watching it unfold over the course of that day. But it really, I think, alerted people that like, okay, that guy must have broken a whole bunch of laws for this to be possible. And not really. No. I mean, he had broken other laws. <laughs> like Part of his personal turmoil is that he had just gotten out of jail for some gun issues and was going to be in continued probation, whatever. He was house arrest for a while um he probably was trafficking animals there were some things he had violated but in owning those animals he had not really violated any laws right and that was the surprising part i think to everyone is that yeah. this was legal and that did thrust a lot into the conversation and i would imagine is was largely responsible for this act being introduced at that time did not go through at that time but Ohio did pass yes. some laws after that cracking down on exotic pet ownership. So we'll talk more about that, too. So, yeah, that was a big incident that kind of put this through. It's far from the only incident. I mean, you remember I, I remember Zanesville. I'm I can't believe in my mind that that was already over 10 years ago. Like it feels <laughs> still very fresh in my mind, actually. I remember a different type of incident, but falling under the same category, Siegfried and Roy, the magicians, yes, you remember yeah. them? I think that was a big thing. I mean, I remember watching them when I was younger. And again, I loved the tigers. There was always, I think, a little bit of a dichotomy in me that was like, wow, these are beautiful animals. It's amazing to see this. I remember seeing shows that went behind the scenes of where they lived and all of these. And I was like, I mean, gorgeous, but also scary. Like I could never do that. Right. <laughs> and then, and then he gets mauled on stage by by one of his quote-unquote animals so you know it's far from the only incident this this happens but sometimes it takes these sort of major things to get this legislature passed and here we are now at finally passing in 2022 and we all know a couple of years ago tiger king <laughs> coming out sort of pushed this into the national conversation again yeah, I think one of the things to mention is that we have so far talked about it from like a safety perspective, but we haven't even touched on the animal welfare yes. aspect of it. The Zanesville incident, they had had animal welfare issues prior to this and were reported for that. But I think Tiger King was an interesting juxtaposition of both of those things of like, this is clearly not a safe up and up sort of situation right. but also if you watched that with an eye for the animals that was a horrendous example of how animals are treated in yes. the country this country and, and so we're going to definitely talk about that too because i that's that's in my mind this this big cat public safety act is really going to hopefully have an impact on those so, sort of both of those prongs the public safety which is what it's called obviously and the animal welfare so we want to talk about that i will say i did not actually watch tiger king ever because i didn't feel i needed that in my life uh, at this point i'm all too familiar uh with with all of, of that side of things but i i feel like that was one of the criticisms i heard is that it did not fully uh really address the welfare concerns but uh hopefully 
that's starting to have become more visible now in the time that's passed since the show came out. Right. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about it in this episode. We will also do another episode to kind of go a little bit deeper into the ethics of exotic pet ownership. But in Tiger King specifically, my big gripe, because, hey, I love a good true crime sort of documentary. And there is a podcast. Sarah's not into it. I don't. I can't do the true crime. There actually is a podcast that came out before Tiger King that does a better job and actually doesn't gloss over some of the things that the documentary did about horrible things that that Joe Exotic did to animals on his ranch because Tiger King was much more interested in the, like, he said, she said, like, the two sides of the coin of Carol Baskins and Joe Exotic when really there there is a scientific argument for why what Joe Exotic was doing, specifically things like cub petting, are both dangerous and horrible for the animals and there there should have been more science and experts brought in on that front so all of that said i really want to take a look at today why this big cat public safety act was actually needed because when any of these things happen when zanesville happened when we watch things like tiger king i and i get asked you know working at a in, in the animal field i get asked like people will this has happened to me within the past few weeks people will be like how do people even have isn't it illegal like how can you possibly have a tiger as a pet aren't they an endangered species people will ask me that and the answer is well it depends or has been at least uh with this uh law not quite signed in into place yet uh it's it depends on where you live which we'll talk more about but but yeah it seems crazy to me that up until this point, this wasn't just completely illegal. You would think something like the Endangered Species Act might cover this. And I think for a long time, I thought it did too. And I sort of just thought that all of this was illegal no matter what. Um, So I want to kind of take a look at some of the laws that we have in place currently that deal with this sort of thing. So let's talk real quick about the Endangered Species Act. We've talked about it before. It covers a lot of things. I mean, you think about species that are listed on the Endangered Species Act. So it's it's looking at, you know, you having to have a plan in place for animal recovery and all that kind of thing. The Endangered Species Act is how the United States is in compliance with CITES, which is the convention. Is that right? I hate I acronyms think so. I always Convention. forget. Convention on International Trade of Exotic Species. So this in- is another one of yeah, those yeah. In- endangered species. Excuse me. Yes. This is another one of those sort of agreements things. CITES is not a law. It's just an agreement between countries trying to protect. Yeah. It wildlife. is, though, enforced in individual countries as Correct. like a law. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that's what the Endangered Species Act. This is the le- the legal enforcement in the United States of our non-legal agreement with other countries, basically. So it prevents the take of endangered or threatened species, including harassing, harming, capturing, or trapping. So basically, it is illegal to take a tiger from the wild and keep it as a pet. You can't do that. It does not address specifically in that way tigers that are bred in captivity. Right. Now, to finesse some of the point there is that there are good reasons to have some. Like, this is not just tigers. This is every little species of turtle, of, (laughs) of birds. And there are important conservation programs 
that do kind of need this carve out because otherwise it would be illegal for like a zoo to be able to bring back the black-footed ferret right because they are endangered and that would count as us capturing them so that's sort of where the carve out is but it is exploited to hell (laughs) exactly and that's the trouble with something like the endangered species act you can't necessarily use it for something like this because it covers such a broad array of species that have different needs and different uh different ways that conservation is going to work with them, for lack of a better way to put it. So you can't necessarily just prohibit everything uh, under the Endangered Species Act uh, just because of all of the complexities involved in that. So that's why you can say, yeah, a tiger, and I, I keep using tigers as the example, but yes, we're talking about lots of other large exotic species as well. But even though that they are endangered and they're protected under the Endangered Species Act, that this private ownership still happens. So that's one Endangered Species Act we've all heard. It does offer protections in that way, does not knock out our issue of private ownership of these animals. Then we have the Lacey Act. Casey, are you familiar with the Lacey Act at all? Yeah, um, it is, from my understanding, the first federal conservation law Mm -hmm. and it basically was able to be put in place because really the federal government doesn't have the same sort of jurisdiction on individual states and telling people what they can do with wildlife within their individual state but it does very much cover interstate commerce and so this was sort of built on a framework of selling wildlife across state lines and making that illegal. Yeah. So what one article that I was reading put it just just talking about the issue of exotic wildlife ownership was is that you know there's no federal police force <laughs> that so you you know if you have these federal laws it's hard you can't sort of enforce things like that what you can enforce are the checkpoints like the interstate travel and that sort of thing um so that's sort of what this this was targeting and it was originally designed more um to protect like wild game So hunters, say, could not go if they live in a state where an animal was protected, you can't go to another state and kill it to then bring it back and sell it in the state where it's protected. So that's kind of what it was originally designed to do, but it has been amended many times over the years, largely to keep this same idea, but to expand the species that it covered, adjusting penalties for violating the law and that sort of thing. So we'll talk about some other kind of amendments to this. The Big Cat Public Safety Act is, in my understanding, if you look at the actual document itself is an amendment to the Lacey Act. It's kind of funny to me that I can't, nobody else is stating that anywhere. But if you look at the document itself, uh, that's what it is referred to as an amendment of the Lacey Act. So this thing has been around for a long time and we keep uh, adjusting it (laughs) as new issues arise, uh, which is a good thing that we can do Fairly recently, I think they added things like certain wood species, like timber, that Hmm. would come from endangered species that's the sort of also other amendments that you've seen to it it's not just oh you're going to go out and hunt something it can also apply to other wildlife that is not animals so um yes what you really need in these federal laws like you're talking about is like a legal framework that holds up and then enforcement mechanisms that you can look at so 
it is sometimes easier to amend existing laws that have already passed through the courts and already been upheld versus doing something that's whole cloth new and trying to get it through all of the challenges right. that would yeah. happen that way. If you have something that works now, yeah, how can we make it work for the problems that we're still seeing continue? So another big one that is the the second prong, I think, of this Big Cat Public Safety Act needing to address is the Animal Welfare Act. So this one has been around since the 60s. This regulates the treatment of animals in research, teaching, testing, exhibitions. That includes things like our zoos and aquariums. Well, zoos more than aquariums, which we'll talk about, uh, and transport. So this is enforced by the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. It does have a number of exclusions, including things like rats and mice, which is funny when you talk about it regulating testing, since rats and mice are largely used in testing, uh, and also reptiles and amphibians. So this is really only only covering warm-blooded animals. Uh, but it does, like I said, in include zoos. Casey, have you ever been around for a USDA inspection? I haven't been like in the same building as them when it's happening. But with Andrew, he works in a reptile building and not at his current facility, but at his last facility. I remember him talking like to me, it's kind of exciting because I'm a nerd about this kind of stuff is, oh, the USDA is coming. What does that mean? What do you have to do for it? And he worked in a reptile building that housed meerkats. And he, when I asked him, oh, what do you have to do for it? He's like, you know, we, we always try and make sure everything's just at its cleanest and at its healthiest, but the USDA doesn't care about reptiles and they don't care about amphibians. So they only care about the meerkats Mm -hmm. and they only care about our storage of antivenom. That's the only thing that they would check out in that particular building. But in other areas, they would look for things like you know, do they have access to water? How clean is the area? Are there any visible issues with what the health of the animal is? How is their food storage, their medicine storage all done? Because you are sometimes giving drugs to animals that might be regulated under human laws. So all of these things kind of fall under these unannounced USDA inspections. Right. And that's a big point. What you just said is that this is largely enforced by unannounced inspections. That's what they do. So they have inspectors, sometimes veterinarians, but sometimes just other trained uh, inspectors from USDA will come and you don't know when they're going to show up. And then they just show up and you kind of have to take them around and they get to look at the premises and look at all of those things, Casey, that you just mentioned. And uh, it should happen annually. There is some criticism of the Animal Welfare Act sometimes that says that it is not enforced strongly enough, whether that means inspections not happening or just letting things slide. And I think that may in some way just be related to the the challenges with the number of inspectors you have versus the number of facilities that you have. Um, And that is just a challenge with some of these, some of this legislation, like We have the best of intentions when we put these things into place, but figuring out the enforcement side of it, I I think, can be tough. I have also never physically been present during an inspection, but I know that USDA has certainly inspected facilities that I've been at. And they, I mean, they'll, they'll note minor things. Like I was reading some 
people say, oh, they'll think like we got noted for like a feed bag that was torn or something like that, or this animal had a scratch on it or whatever. And so it's not like, oh, there's a violation. Boom, you're you're shut right. down type of thing. It's like, oh, here, here are the things we noted that you have an opportunity to correct those things. They come back and make sure those things are corrected for those those minor violations. I have also been to some facilities that I don't feel should have been running. These are places that have USDA licenses. And as I walk through, I'm like, there's there's no way that this place is not in violation uh, of the Animal Welfare Act. So it is difficult. It's the the enforcement piece of it uh, certainly can be difficult. But again, you know, you'd I'd rather the law exist than not. Um, and I think we have to keep working on the enforcement side. Right. I mean, this is, again, something to keep in mind anytime that people are mm-hmm. talking about cutting excess like government waste. Obviously, we want our taxpayer dollars to be going to things that are very effective, but sometimes they end up getting you know, we, if we don't increase funding for things like this, if there's more facilities, but the same amount of inspectors, there's not going to be as much enforcement. Like you said, a lot of times they'll note something and then say, okay, we're going to come back. And if this isn't fixed, that's when you might have things like fines or start to have mm-hmm. some more of the, the penalties and consequences. I also know that there are facilities, which I think you can kind of see within, uh, if you watch Tiger King, again, like probably just the most famous example is that you're entering a facility where other things that might not be legal might also be happening in mm-hmm. these larger less regulated, not accredited spaces. So I know that was an issue at a facility in Indiana where they had the USD officer go to the property and the property owner threatened them with a firearm. And mm-hmm. at that point, they're a USD officer. They're not going to yep. be able, they're not going to say, well, too bad. I'm coming on your property. They're, they're not armed and they're not there to try and risk their own safety to try and get on there. And then that's when you start to have an issue where how do you then enforce this Animal Welfare Act if you can't gain safe access to the property and who's actually helping enforce that? And that's when it becomes a little bit more messy. For sure. And yeah, I do not blame that USDA officer for one second. That is beyond (laughs) the scope. Um, But yeah, it, it does present its challenges. But I think it is good to know that we do have federal law in place that does regulate some standards for some of these institutions. Next up, we have the Captive Wildlife Safety Act. Uh, and this is another one of those amendments to the Lacey Act. And it was signed into law in back in 2003. And what the Captive Wildlife Safety Act did was it prevented import, export, buying, selling, transporting, receiving, or acquiring certain live big cats across state lines or the U.S. border. So you can see how that ties into what we talked about with the original Lacey Act and and preventing that transport of game across state lines. So we're now doing that for those big cats. And one of the things that this then did was prevent private exotic pet owners from moving to one state to another with their pet. So that that became illegal. Like if you are somebody who owns a lion and wanted to move from South Dakota to Indiana, you can't do that or you cannot take your lion with you. And that 
the Captive Wildlife Safety Act applies to lions, tigers, leopards, snow leopards, clouded leopards, shagwars, cheetahs, cougars, and any and all hybrids or subspecies of those animals. So I like that one. I feel like that was a big step forward. You can't breed a liger and then be like, it's none of these. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good it loophole to close because you know that that would have happened. Right. Um, sure. I'm not as familiar with like the details of this act, and maybe you're not either. I guess I assume that zoos and aquariums that breed these animals for conservation purposes. Yes. Or if you're moving them to a different sanctuary, maybe they're probably just like permits to apply. There for. are exemptions. Yes. Okay. That you can apply for. And I do have, there's a, actually a really nice uh, fish and wildlife document on that one. So I'll have that in the show notes as well. But yes, for those facilities, they, yes, you can apply for exemptions, but that it's not an exemption that's going to be granted to a private owner right and that is that's specifically even stated outright on that document but yes there are exceptions because we do that and we know that zoos do that for species survival plan purposes and maintaining genetic diversity and all of that that is that education yeah conservation yeah. purposes yeah yep okay so we have a lot of legislature in place talking about exotic wildlife ownership so why still this public safety act well clearly all of those things that we've talked about none of them federally prohibit pet ownership so going back to when i have folks asking me how why can you how is it legal uh and it, it depends on where you live so up until now whether or not it is actually legal to own some of these animals was largely up to state law and so you really had to just know the law where you live. Um, there is a nice map from uh, Michigan State University that kind of shows across the United States which states have kind of what regulation right now on exotic pet ownership. About 20 states do have a ban on large exotic pets. Other states have some type of regulation, uh, whether that means requiring a USDA permit, which as we said, still has some issues because just because you have a permit does not mean that those folks are necessarily actually doing all of the things that they should be doing uh, under that permit. Or some states might also have partial bans. So there might be some species that you are not allowed to own, but other species that you still can. And then at least according to this map, there were three states that have no regulation still uh, on exotic pet ownership. So even after seeing things like what happened in Zanesville, there are still three states in the United States with no regulation on ownership. So that right there in my mind is enough to say, yeah, man, let's again, I, I get the challenges of having a federal law in place, but this is sort of needlessly complicated in my mind. And so aside from that, okay, well, who cares? What's really the problem? Another issue, and I'm going back to just the tiger thing, but this is one of those stats that that I've always heard and even said, and even as I say it, I'm just like, this is made up. It just feels like one of those sort of internet stats that's not really true. But to the best of our knowledge, it is a true statement still that there are more tigers in captivity in the United States 
estimates sort of all over the place, but say around 4,500 could be more than that, then there are left in the wild, which is maybe up to 4,000. There are more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are left in the wild. And a very large portion of that uh, is the private ownership. Yeah, like to give you an idea, uh, it's been a couple years since I've looked at the statistics, but I think in like Association of Zoos and Accredited, like uh, like Association of Zoos and Aquariums accredited institutions, it's like less than 500 tigers like are in in that overall. I want to say the number that I came across was 6%. We're yeah, in institutions. <laughs> I'll try to find that too and make sure that. And that, I mean, that like, correct. there's you know, there's sanctuaries and things like that. There's you know, accredited institutions can come from a, a variety of different sources. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's important to note that um, so people have these in their backyards. Not, you know, we don't know how many, right? Necessarily, and that's part of the problem. But that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Okay, so you might be saying, okay, well, it's sad that there aren't that many left in the wild, but still. So according to the Animal Welfare Institute, since 1990, there have been at least 400 dangerous incidents involving big cats in 46 states and the District of Columbia. Big cats have killed five children and 20 adults and caused serious injuries to to many others, uh, again, just in the last 30 years or so. So this is it is a public safety issue. You know, you go back to Zanesville. Officers did not know what they were dealing with. It was not known how many animals, what animals this a person was in possession of. And that's just that is not a safe way to live uh, for anybody so it's not safe for the people and then you look at the sort of tiger king side of things and this practice of cub petting that some institutions will have these sort of roadside attractions or even interactions other interactions with larger big cats as well uh, and the way that these animals can be displayed to the public uh and this this leads to poor animal welfare. And Casey, I will I will admit here that I have participated in cub petting activities. That is something that I remember doing when I was younger uh, on more than one occasion. We had no idea sort of the ramifications and uh, what potential issues were being caused by cub petting. The people that we had the particular experience with very nice. Uh, I just had a magical experience and, uh, you know, I already loved animals and all of that. Can um, you expand a little? Sorry, I yeah. just like, I never ran across any of this when I was a kid. I can tell you that if someone offered when I was like seven years old for me to hold a baby tiger, my life would have been made. Um, so I'm just curious, were you at a mall? Was this like a no, private so party? This was a, this was a sanctuary. It okay. was a sanctuary. So you, you would go through and you see the animals and it was clearly not, you know, a, a place that had a lot of money, but the animals had space. These animals were not living in squalor. Uh, they would take you around. They had an educator who would talk to you about some of the animals and they had a couple of tiger cubs. And you just, I, I don't remember the details. It was a long time ago, but you did just get to go in and you spent a few minutes and there were staff members there. Um, but you got to interact with 
these tiger cubs and they were adorable and it was amazing. Um, and I will say that that was a, if you want to say that there's a spectrum, that was a better place to have done it. Again, I don't remember all of the specifics. This was not a place that was just churning out cubs, which is one of the issues that you can have. They had cubs at the moment, so they were offering uh, this experience. This place also uh, is still in existence and no longer does this and no longer allows any interaction. And they've they are huge champions for the Public Safety Act and uh, and and all of that. So I think that they've they've really done a great job. So I can't I can't like I get the the awe of of wanting to get a chance to interact with these amazing and adorable young animals. The issues that I didn't know about when I did this was that oftentimes these cubs are churned out. Like, again, this was not something that the, the organization that I was at was doing, but a lot of times this is how these places will make their money. Like, this is how they get people in to to visit their quote unquote zoo uh their their attraction uh is to advertise hey you know come and interact with the come see these cute babies come in and pay x amount of dollars uh to interact with these babies once those babies get too big to be used for cup petting who knows who knows what happens they get sold off do they get killed off do they get you know so there's instances there there it leads to overbreeding inbreeding having too many animals for the space that you have, health issues for those animals, stress on these animals. Um, it's just not, it's, it's not good for the animals. And ultimately, even though I as an animal lover enjoyed it, it's not good for people either because it does, I think, put that wrong idea in people's minds about the ability of these animals to sort of be owned and to think of them as domestic animals, which they are not. Again, this is <laughs> these animals shouldn't be kept as pets because they are not domesticated animals, uh, among many other, uh, among many other reasons. I think that it's also important to point out here that Sarah and I are not saying that anyone who owns a big cat or has a desire to own a big cat is a malicious person. Right. Um, that's that's part of why I'm trying to, yeah. to share that I did this because I do understand, like, I get it. Like, you know, we've, we've brought up a couple incidents that have involved, like, you know, safety and violence. Because I think that it's important to note that, like, if we have no regulation whatsoever, this is what is allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. But also, how do you start to draw those lines between someone who has really good intentions and then someone who is going to be irresponsible? The right. amount of money that it takes to properly take care of an exotic species is I think a lot more than like, imagine your vet care for, I hate paying like $400 for Ginger's vet care. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's a tiger. Like you're going to have to find yeah. a specific vet for that. And you're going to have to have a lot of the same vaccines. You're not going to be able to interact with it in safely in the same way that you can a normal pet. That's how a lot of these people who get injured are the owners of these animals because they overestimate their ability to stay safe in this situation. Um, and even if they love animals, is it the right thing to do for these animals to keep them in the, their the conditions that they are? And and what is the point? Like, is it just for you or is it for like what? 
these are the things I want to discuss more deeply eventually, but like, these are things I hope we can keep in mind is that these, I think everyone comes in with their own sort of perspective on it. And it doesn't necessarily have to start with like a, I don't care about these animals. I just like owning them. It mostly starts with a, I think that this is, this is my favorite animal. This is amazing. And I have this opportunity. Like you were saying, those, those little cubs bring in a lot of money. And one of the things I was reading in a GQ article about the Zanesville incident is that one of the officials for the Columbus Zoo who had helped out with the, the incident itself and, and helping keep the officers safe during this is that uh, there is a big market for tiger cubs. There's not a big market for live adult tigers. Right. So what when these babies eventually grow up, what happens to them? Do they end up in a sanctuary? Do they end up in squalor? Do they end up, because this is also a factor, as being killed for body parts, which mm-hmm. are often more valuable than the adult tiger itself to be used in traditional medicine or Ill- illegal trade as well? Yeah. So there's a lot of questions that go in that's really hard to track down once you start going down that path. Yeah, a lot of questions. And that's where I, despite, you know, having had that experience as a kid that, I, again, I do, I was, I, I didn't need it. That's the thing. I already loved animals. Tigers yeah. were already my favorite animal. I didn't need to go interact with them to make, to to give me some sort of spark. I did love it. But then the more that I learned about them, the more I was like, okay, like I understand how these types of things are ultimately detrimental to the species. So that's where you have to step up and say, no, like I, I love these animals. And so, no, I don't support this. And so um, I think sanctuaries and institutions that really do have the best interests of the animals at heart, even if cub petting was something that they had done before, they're going to say, yeah, you know what? You're right. We see how this is contributing to the problem and we're not, we're not going to do it anymore. So uh, enter the Big Cat Public Safety Act. That is one of the things that it prohibits. And one of the ways that I hope that it will help contribute largely to the betterment of of animal welfare. So what it's doing uh, big picture is it is finally making private ownership federally illegal. So this is, you know, previously what we talked about that sort of governed by that those state laws and kind of patchworked across the country. So (laughs) if you are a current big cat owner you are grandfathered in you don't have to give up your cat you are required now to register it so they're trying to target again you know what happened in zanesville we don't want these large cats being kept in places and people having no idea that they're there Um, so we want to know where these animals are folks that do own cats currently are not allowed to breed no additional cats can be added and it does eliminate cub petting and any interaction with uh, the public and big cats. So I, I I really think that it is huge. Do you have feelings generally, Casey, about this law being passed? Well, honestly, I feel like I want to read even more about it. Uh, in general, like the idea that cub petting is over 
makes me want to cry tears of joy. <laughs> and, and we haven't necessarily completely gone into all of the details, but like, why are those babies not with their mom? I think that's the first question that you should ask in a cub petting situation is like, why are these baby tigers not with their mom? And why are they being handled by a bunch of people? And the idea that that sort of thing is over, it, it, it is just such a huge animal welfare issue on top of all the conservation issues it has. So that's amazing. Um, I just looked at, at what species are covered by it. It looks like it's the same ones that are under the Captive Wildlife yes, Safety sorry. Act. That applies to lions, tigers, leopards, snow leopards, clouded leopards, jag- jaguars, cheetahs, and cougars. I know it makes private ownership, and maybe that's something to divvy up a little bit as well is that you can be a private owner without registering with the USDA and then you can be like a class something exhibitor and that's where USDA stuff comes in yeah so these like pets who are not on exhibit are the ones that we just don't know about and then there's like these roadside zoos a lot of times that will have some sort of USDA license already yes and at least my understanding is that's still that's fine. Fine. Still. And that's yes. still covered by the uh, the other acts that we've talked about. And right. that's those are the ones that I think the cub petting side of it is is going to hopefully target and help is those institutions that are not being responsible about their reading right. and public interaction and that sort of thing. I think that's what's going to to help there, hopefully. Yeah. The thing that's been sort of hovering over this whole conversation to me is that I'm really excited for big cats. Um, This doesn't cover apes, for example, who also have the same sort of issues and gaps in bands like that, that exotic wildlife sort of pet ban that we were talking about, like orangutans and chimpanzees also fall under and also have a lot of these same like safety issues and welfare issues. So I'm I'm interested to see five years from now what we see as Agreed. like the change. Um, maybe maybe ten years is better. Ten years from now, most of the big cats who are pets will be at, towards the end of their lifespan because big cats don't live that long. They live like ten to fifteen years. So, are we going to be able to see like a visible change in the safety incidents that we come across? Are we going to be able to see a visible change in the amount of these? Like, I mean, since we so many of these are secret pet tigers. <laughs> how are we going to know if it's worked the way that we we want it to i i'm i think it's such an important big step forward and exciting um and i just i want to see how it plays out yeah i think you hit all my thoughts exactly like i the largely i'm just like why didn't we have this before <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my biggest thing but i i really hope that it is going to help both public safety and animal welfare i am glad cup petting is is done i do think that we need more laws governing the uh the ownership of other types of wild animals as well and as we've talked about with the animal welfare act in general i'm curious to see enforcement of this i think you know the having people register their pets i i think is a good thing to include and i i don't think the argument that well people are just not going to do it i don't think that that is an argument against passing the law i think we have to know i think that some people will do it i think we have to know that not everybody is going to do it um but i think that 
having a federal law is hopefully going to make it harder for folks as these cats, you know, do reach the end of their life. I, I think it's going to make it harder for folks to continue the process. And that's all we can ask for is to 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 do the best we can and to keep um, moving forward to try to uh, make these practices more difficult for people. So I'm happy yeah, I guess that it's passed. I'm cur- uh, curious to see how things will look moving forward. That's that's another question I have is, you know, how many of these people would actually register their pet? In Pennsylvania, you're supposed to register your dog. And it is such a poorly enforced um, right. thing. And the the sad part about it is that the fun, like the amount of money, which is not very much to register your dog in Pennsylvania, is supposed to fund random inspection, inspection of puppy mills. And the like funding is so low that it's basically an insolvent fund and so (laughs) so the way that they're trying to enforce animal welfare by having like good pet owners Mm -hmm. register their like it it is not working so i'm hoping (laughs) that that's also not something that's in here that's like that hinges upon people having certain um, like the funding Mm -hmm. doesn't come from the act itself because i that didn't work in pennsylvania so (laughs) with dogs so i can't imagine it would work with like someone who has a jaguar Yes. hanging out in their backyard so yeah no lots of questions lots of questions but a good step forward i yes. think so stick around and we'll wrap up and give our challenges for the week Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, this was a challenging one for me, more so than I expected. I I, I felt like it was going to be challenging from like the legal side of things. I don't ever like talking about legislature because I just feel like I can't. I don't can't explain it well enough, or I, I can't even fully grasp. Especially, honestly, the enforcement side of things because it. I think it is just so overwhelming. Uh, but it ended up being more sort of emotionally challenging for me uh, in just thinking about this issue and uh, the differences of opinions and things like that that I came across uh, surrounding exotic uh, animal ownership. So I appreciate you all listening. Hopefully you found uh, something interesting in it. And thanks, Casey, as always, for the discussion. Um, I do have a couple of challenges for you. One is a thing that we have talked about before, but uh, I think is worth giving as a challenge multiple times and just keeping in the back of your mind always uh, is if you are visiting an animal institution, uh, in particular, one that's not AZA accredited. We've talked about the Association of Zoos and Aquariums before. It's not that I think they're some perfect organization either, but they have higher standards uh, when it comes to animal care and and welfare. So again, it's just sort of a a little bit less homework that you have to do. If an institution is accredited, uh, you know that they've got standards related to animal care and conservation and education and all of that. So if you're visiting an animal institution that is not AZA accredited, make sure that you are looking for places that specifically will speak out against this and say, we we're, we are not breeding our animals, we're not buying and selling endangered species, uh, and certainly, you know, that that are not exploiting their animals. Look around, look at photos if you can, make sure that those animals are being kept uh, in appropriate conditions before you visit. Also, if you have concerns, 
you can report animal welfare concerns to the USDA. There is a link on their website. It is a little challenging. You can do so anonymously. They say on the website, if you're anonymous, of course, they can't follow up with you. Um, however, if you don't do it anonymously, the person that you're filing the complaint against can also see that information, which is tough. Um, so just know that uh, going in, but there is information. There is a little, there is a link uh, on the USDA website where you can report animal welfare concerns. And the other thing that you can do, no matter where you live, is you can thank your senator for passing the, uh, the, the Big Cat Public Safety Act, because as we've talked about before, our legislators hear a lot of negative stuff. So I think it's important to tell them. So if you feel like the Big Cat Public Safety Act was a good thing to pass, then you can let them know, hey, thanks for doing this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They don't get a lot of love. So when they do something good, we like to tell them that they're doing something good. <laughs> and yeah, uh, that they were all able to work together on this one because that, that's exciting. I know the bill was originally co-sponsored by both parties. So mm -hmm. it really has been non I mean everything's political but nonpartisan sort of issue going forward so that this is an exciting step towards having a better standard of animal welfare and ownership standards in the U.S. so that's exciting yeah all right if you have any questions comments suggestions for us there are several places that you can find us we're on Facebook a little greener podcast we're on Instagram at a little greener pod or on Twitter at a greener podcast. You can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, Sarah, for an uh, exciting episode topic. I'm happy we did this one. Yay. Well, thanks for your discussion, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm still in your line, Casey. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>